I invite you to take your Bibles, open them with me again to the Old Testament history book of Nehemiah. This week to Nehemiah chapter 5 as we continue uh, in this series uh, studying the life of Nehemiah and the people who he helped to lead by God's grace to rebuild the wall around the city of Jerusalem as the Jewish exiles returned from exile in Persia to the city of Jerusalem between the years of 538 B.C. and 445 B.C. Harry Truman, the 33rd president of the United States, is credited with these words. He said, three things ruin a man, power, money, and women. I never wanted power. I never had any money. And the only woman in my life is up at the house right now. Now, Whether or not Harry Truman never wanted power or never had any money may be up for some debate. I don't know of many people who have run for president very reluctantly. And I know fewer still who have attained the office without some financial resources at their disposal or coming into financial resources that they were able to use as a result of their campaigning. But nevertheless, there is some truth to Truman's statement here. The temptation to abuse power to gain wealth or to use wealth to gain power can make a monster out of any man. As we find in Nehemiah chapter 5, that temptation that comes with power and wealth, or the power that comes with wealth, threatens the work of rebuilding the wall among the people of Judah. In Nehemiah chapter 5, we find that some of the Jewish nobles in the city of Jerusalem, who had both money and power, had begun to ruin the livelihoods of the Jews that were living in and around the city, rebuilding the wall. They used their wealth, they used their influence, to impoverish those who are already poverty-stricken. Nehemiah chapter 5, we'll find this godly leader, Nehemiah, leading the nobles among the Jews to repent of their practice of loaning money and grain and uh, other subsidies at interest to other Jews and to restore what they had charged their beleaguered and poverty-stricken brothers. Going a step further, even Nehemiah himself employs great generosity among the people for the sake of God's people. In Nehemiah chapter 5, we will see this idea rise to the surface, that God's generous redemption calls His people to live generously with each other. God's generous redemption calls His people to live generously with each other. And as we explore and see this truth from God's Word in Nehemiah 5, let us then resolve ourselves to see whatever God has given to us as His means for glorifying Himself in the lives of others. Would you stand with me as we honor God by reading his word? Nehemiah chapter 5. We'll start with verses 1 through 5. The Holy Spirit inspires Nehemiah to write these words. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. There were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards, and now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children, yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it's not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. 
God's generous redemption calls His people to live with to, to live generously with each other. And so as we come to Nehemiah 5, these first five verses, we are presented with another problem. There's been a lot of problems along the way in Nehemiah pertaining to the building of the wall. In this case, in Nehemiah chapter 5, work on the wall around the city has taken people away from their fields and from their livelihood. Most of these that were living in Jerusalem or around Jerusalem were agrarian by nature. They worked fields. They tended farms and vineyards and olive orchards in order to feed their family and in order to sell the, uh, the, the extra of their produce to make money to you know, keep plowing their fields and so on. But because the, of the rebuilding effort of the wall around the city of Jerusalem, everybody has left their other work to go work on the wall, and their families are growing. They're having more children, by God's grace, but there's a lack of food because now these people who owned lands and vineyards and those who worked in the fields of those who owned lands and vineyards are now giving their time and their effort to rebuilding the wall, so they're not able to work their fields and reap the produce that comes from it. The problem is there's people are growing and they don't have any food. There are a number of solutions that are tried that we find in verses 3 through 5 of Nehemiah chapter 5, but these solutions are all failed solutions to meet this problem of food. First of all, in verse 3, some of those who are in this problem of trying to feed their family have resorted to mortgaging their fields and their vineyards to noble Jews within the city. The problem of their hunger is made worse by a famine in the land, we are told. And so in order to feed their families, these Jews are, are mortgaging their property and their crops to other Jewish nobles so that they can have money to buy food from other sources. So not only do these Jews who are impoverished not have food, but even if the famine lifts, they, they won't even be able to eat the fruit of their own harvest because it's all going to go to pay off their mortgages. The situation gets even worse. Uh, some of them have resorted to the problem of, or, or to the practice of giving their sons and their daughters into slavery. Now, the kind of slavery that Nehemiah describes the people practicing here is not like the kind of North, uh, Atlantic slave trade chattel slavery that we saw on, uh, in this continent several centuries ago, but this is a, a, a debt slavery. They would become bond servants to other people. The practice was that if you owed a debt to another person that you were not able to pay, uh, that you would go into service to them in their household, and you would work as a household service a servant. And in return for your work, you wouldn't receive wages, but you would have a place to live, and you would have food to feed yourself and to feed your family until your debt was paid. And so these Jews are having to resort to that, to giving their sons and their daughters into the homes of other people, maybe Persians and even Jewish nobles, to serve in their homes uh, to pay off debt or just to be cared for, just to have food in their belly. This situation is made worse still because the people have had to borrow, uh, not just borrow money in order to buy grain for their families, but they've also had to borrow money to pay the property taxes that were being charged by the Persian king Artaxerxes. So they're just getting hit from every side. The fact that their fields have been mortgaged and they still have to pay property taxes on them means that even, even if they're able to work their fields, whatever meager fruit they're able to harvest goes either to the king or to go, goes to those that hold their debt, to their Jewish brothers and sisters who hold their, their mortgage debt to them. They're in a terrible, terrible spot. So Nehemiah tells us what happens next when he hears this word about this problem and these failed solutions to fixing this problem. Verse 6, Nehemiah says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. 
I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them. And I said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you sell your brothers into debt slavery so that they may be sold to us. The nobles, the officials, they were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations of our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then the officials, the nobles, said, We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests, and I made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. And they praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. First five verses of Nehemiah 5 shows a problem and many failed solutions. These verses 6 through 13 of Nehemiah 5 show us a rebuke and restoration. A rebuke, a, 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 a verbal correction from Nehemiah to those that had been lending money at interest to their brothers and, and also a restoration of what had been borrowed. When Nehemiah hears the outcry from the people about their deeply impoverished state and how they have become debtors to their brothers at interest that they can't pay back, he is deeply angered by this news. It's one thing for the people and for the rebuilding project of the wall to be threatened from external dangers like Senballat and Tobiah and Geshem, the leaders of the nations around Jerusalem that have, uh, and around Judah that have opposed the building of the wall. It's one thing to be opposed by enemies to God. It's another thing when the work of the wall is threatened by the greed and selfishness that comes from within the Jews. Nehemiah is angry because the nobles among the Jews have prospered at the expense and the poverty of their poorer brothers. And so he first rebukes the nobles privately. He brings them together and he brings his complaint to them. His complaint, though, saying you are exacting interest each from his brother, his complaint is not driven by his own internal sense of justice. His complaint against what the, these Jewish nobles has been doing is informed by the word of God. Now, Nehemiah doesn't say it explicitly here, but we've seen in other places already in Nehemiah 1 through 4 that this leader of the people of Israel is one who is steeped in the word of God. He knows the word of God, particularly the first five books of the Old Testament, the law of God, Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy. He knows the covenant boundaries that God has placed around his covenant people, Israel, in the Old Testament. And, and the way that they're supposed to live among one another and in relation to God as, as they follow God faithfully. Nehemiah knows that in God's law, it was lawful, it was allowed for Jews to lend money and to lend supplies or food to one another. But even in their lending, it was always illegal, always wrong to charge interest on those loans. And yet that's exactly what's happening in Jerusalem in this day. Nehemiah knows the word of the Lord from Exodus 22 verse 25, where God says through his servant Moses, if you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him and you shall not exact interest from him. 
Nehemiah knows the words of God from Leviticus chapter 25 when he says, If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. The very idea of profiting off of the poverty of God's people is an abominable practice in the eyes of God. And knowing this, it's an abominable practice in the eyes of Nehemiah as well. And so he confronts those who are acting, who are living sinfully. Moreover, Nehemiah points out the irony of their actions. For decades, the people of Israel, the people of Judah, have been living in exile in the in the nation of Persia under a foreign king. Now, God took them into exile because of their own disobedience and idolatry, but they've been living as strangers in a strange land, only now, after several decades, to be able to be redeemed again by God and brought back to their homeland to be as His living beacons of His glory in the world, except now that they've returned from exile as slaves in Persia, so to speak, now they're being sold as debt slaves to their other brothers and to other Persians, only to be bought back as Nehemiah and others are paying off their debts to redeem them. Pointing all this out to the nobles and the officials who have been lending money at interest, using God's word and the principles that God has laid out for his people, Israel in the Old Testament, those who are convicted or confronted by the sin have nothing to answer. They have no response to the charges because the charges are so clear and they're so true. What's interesting to note is that even from verse 10, that Nehemiah seems to be implicated in this sinful practice. Verse 10 says, Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us, all of us, he's including himself in this, abandon this exacting of interest. It seems that Nehemiah, in his reflection upon God's word, realizes I'm part of the problem too. And so he leads the people in repenting to be the first to say, let's be done with this behavior. Let's be done with benefiting, with profiting off of the poverty of our brothers. And so leading the way, he calls for all who have acted abusively to restore what was taken. Give back everything. Friends, this is a picture of true repentance. Repentance is not merely stopping sinful behavior. Repentance is not living in a morally neutral state. Repentance is not only ending sinful behavior, but also seeking to restore whatever was taken whenever possible, seeking restitution with those that we have wronged. So Nehemiah leads them to do this, but also not trusting them any further than he can throw them. He calls them to formalize their repentance with a public ceremony that's overseen by the priests. He says, it's good that you've said that you want to restore all of this, but now I'm really going to hold you to it. We're going to, we're going to so, uh, so, solemnize this, this commitment by bringing the, peace, the, the priests and the people to bear witness. And so they do. And the very good news of all of this is not, not only do the nobles and the officials genuinely repent and restore to those that they had lent to, what, what, what they had taken at interest, they give it all back. But the people, the nobles and officials also remain repentant. This is a beautiful picture of obedience to God. But more still, all of the congregation of Israel worships. All the assembly said amen, and they praised the Lord, and the people did as they had promised. Now, there are several principles that we could pull from this passage that apply to our life as Christians, but I think this is most important for us this morning, that just as Nehemiah relied upon the Word of God to bring correction and conviction and to bring a complaint against those who are sinful among the people of God, we, we learn this and see this, that God's Word is our best source of correction. 
God's Word is our, our only sufficient source of changing, reproving, rebuking sinful behavior. Verse 7 tells us that Nehemiah took counsel with himself before he addressed the nobles and brought the complaint. But we know ultimately he's relying upon the Word of God to reprove and to correct those who are living contrary to the Word of God. It's interesting, isn't it, so far as, as often as Nehemiah has encountered resistance from other people and in, and in different circumstances in this project of rebuilding the wall, that the only time he uses the Word of God to rebuke people is among the people of God. When Sinbalad and Tobiah and Geshem begin mounting a opposition to Nehemiah and to the Jews, he doesn't open God's word and say, what you're doing is really mean, stop it. No, but when it comes to the people of God who are created by the word of God, who says, I will, I will redeem you to be a people for myself, to be a people for my own possession, knowing to whom he is speaking, Nehemiah relies upon the sufficiency and authority of God's word to correct the people of God. So also Paul, the apostle, instructs young Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 to use the God-breathed scriptures to teach, reprove, correct, and train in righteousness all of those who are of the household of faith. Now, the word of God is not only sufficient for telling, telling us about the God who saves, but it's also sufficient for showing us and correcting us when we don't live with God and as the people of the God who saves. God's Word is our very best source of correction, of, of, of revealing of sin and need for repentance. Now, the Word of God, if we will read it through this text, this small library of Holy Spirit-inspired scriptures that we hold in our laps every Sunday and prayerfully in our laps more than just every Sunday, the Word of God, if we'll read it through in its context and not just pick out our, our favorite verses, the Word of God will routinely show us two different things every time and very clearly as we read it. On the one hand, the Word of God shows us the holiness of God, that there is a righteous Creator who made by His own power everything that we see and know and experience in this world and in the universe. Not only is He a powerful Creator, but He's righteous, which means that everything that He does is good and perfectly good. There is no stain of sin in God. There is no fault or flaw within Him. Everything that He does is perfectly perfect every time. The Word of God shows us this routinely on the one hand, but on the other hand, the Word of God will show us, if we'll read it through, will show us over and over again that human beings that God has made as a part of His powerful creation made in His image to know, love, to worship Him, to be as living mirrors of His glory in the world and to the cosmos, that these very special creatures of, of God's own creation, made in His image to glorify Him, have, have decided instead to glorify themselves. Rather than worshiping the righteous Creator, we have, we've worshiped our own reputation. Rather than giving praise to Him, we have sought to be praised by others. Rather than seeking to glorify Him, we've, we've sought to bring glory to ourselves in the world. The Bible shows us over and over and over again that the disposition of the human heart from the moment of birth is to rebel against our righteous Creator. And as soon as we are capable, morally capable, we will act on that sinfulness. Those of us as parents with children know the sinful disposition that lies within all of us. We've got a two-year-old in our house and no one had to teach him to say no. No one had to teach him to defy our instructions. No one had to teach him to fall on the floor and throw a fit when he didn't get his way. That is sin in him coming out. 
And dear friends, that is the state of all of us before God. And as we keep reading God's word through his sufficient word, which shows us not only his perfect holiness, but also our sinfulness, we also see, as the Bible reveals, the problem of our sin. Because not only have we acted rebelliously, not only have we, have we acted as, as traitors against the only king of kings, the creator of the universe, but that we stand to pay. We owe God a, God a moral debt for our sins against him. And listen, sins are not just mistakes that we make. Sins are not just, oops, I slipped up here. Sin is a disposition of our heart. It's a, it's a, 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 a natural sort of ingrown, spiritually genetic defiance against God. And as we read in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, that the wages of sin is death. There's a righteous creator who has made us in his image to glorify him, and yet we have taken that ability to glorify God and sought to our own glory and our own worship instead, and we have incurred a debt that we can never pay to an infinitely holy God. The wages of sin is death. All of us deserve death, not just physically, but spiritually too an eternal separation from the presence of God who made us to glorify Him. But if we'll read the Bible through, it'll show us not just a righteous creator and sinful humanity and a problem of sin that we can't ever overcome on our own, but it also shows to us the great love and mercy of God, who in His justice and in His love delays exacting that debt of, of recalling the debt that we owe him immediately. Instead, in his patience and his love, he waits, extending to us an offer of redemption, an offer of rescue, saying to all, if you will look to me, trust in me, turn from your sin, look to my son Jesus, who is God in very human flesh, who, who lived without ever sinning once, with no disposition to rebel against me, who gave his sinless life in your place to, on the cross to pay for your sins and who was raised from the dead to make you right with me. If you'll give up your own glory seeking and instead trust my son Jesus, you will be right with me. You will be saved from your sin. You will not die, but you will live and forever in my own presence. God's word is sufficient to correct us it's also, if we read it through, it's sufficient to show us that we need ongoing correction, ongoing repentance, ongoing turning to God in faith over and over again as we follow Christ His Son. Friend, if you are not in Christ today, if you have not trusted Jesus as Lord and Savior, you still owe God a debt for your sin, and it's a debt you cannot pay. And if you die today, you will, outside of relationship with God, go to spend eternity separated from God in a place called hell where all of God's wrath against your sin will be poured out for all eternity. Dear friend, hear the call to be saved. Hear the call to be rescued. Hear the call of a gracious God who says, receive the gift of life that is yours through faith in my son Jesus. We move on in the narrative that Nehemiah recalls for us in verses 14 through 19. There's a rebuke and there's restoration and the people praise God and that's good. Repentance is good and it ought to lead the people of God to worship. And Nehemiah continues, he says, Moreover, from that time, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. But the former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily ration for their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, 
but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also preserved, persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O oh my God, all that I have done for this people. As Nehemiah closes this chapter telling us about what he did after rebuking the officials and, and even himself repenting of the, the sin that he had of, of lending money at interest to others, we have in Nehemiah's life a picture of generosity. These final verses of this chapter demonstrate that Nehemiah is a man who quite literally puts his money where his mouth is. As appointed a governor of Judah by the Persian king Artaxerxes, Nehemiah does not use his position of leadership and power and nobility to profit himself. But instead, he uses his position of leadership and nobility and even his own personal wealth to provide for the people. All that he has called the nobles to do in restoring what has been borrowed, he models by his own generosity to those that are around him. His generosity doesn't last just for a moment. It lasts the whole time he's governor for 12 years. In contrast to the governors that came before him, Nehemiah doesn't use the privilege that he had as uh, appointed governor over the people to exact taxes from the people for himself. Instead, he uses his own savings to provide daily food for 150 people in his home that are comprised of all sorts. There's Jews and officials. There are people even of the nations that are coming to them. See, as governor of the region of Judah, Nehemiah would have been obligated to extend hospitality on behalf of the Persian Empire to visiting diplomats from other nations. Now, normally the governors would, and they did before Nehemiah, they would have used the taxes that were imposed upon the people of Judah and upon the Jews to pay for this hospitality for traveling diplomats. But Nehemiah covers all of it at the expense of his own savings. And see how generous it is. Not only does it go on for 12 years, but look what he prepares every day an ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days, all kinds of wine in abundance. Seven days a week, 365 days a year, for 12 years, this is what he's, being, what he's preparing for people to eat at his own expense. Now, you guys have calculators in your phones. You can figure out how many oxen that is, how many sheep that is. It's an extravagant display of generosity to others. But notice in Nehemiah, that his, notice his, his motivation for this generosity. It's lavish. It's extravagant, yeah. But it's not because he's just a nice guy. Nehemiah doesn't do this because he, he considers himself just a particularly benevolent individual. It's not because he's a, he's a picture of philanthropy. No, Nehemiah gives generously, provides generously out of the fear of God. Verse 15 of Nehemiah 5. He says he did not lord this power, this influence, this position that he had. He didn't lord it over the people because of the fear of God. Nehemiah is a man who lives in fearful worship of a redeeming God. And because he knows a generous God who has been generous in salvation and redemption from slavery in Egypt and exile in Persia, so he also gives generously to others. This point of application becomes clear to us that true generosity toward others flows from God's generosity in his redemption to us. 
real generosity, true benevolence toward others flows from, comes from God's generosity to us and the rescue that he has given us from sin. Now, generosity, by definition, implies a kind of undeserved liberal sharing from one's own possessions for the good and the joy for the care of another. Generosity is giving without strings attached or expectation of anything in return. And this picture of this idea of human generosity is not far removed from the biblical idea of God's grace. God's grace is his unmerited favor and the declaration of righteousness for all who have trusted in his son, Jesus Christ. In this way, Nehemiah's generosity here in this passage illustrates God's grace in a few different ways. Follow along with me. First, Nehemiah, though he could demand for himself as governor, he could demand the food allowance for the governor, he does not avail himself of that right to take that money from the people to pay for the food and the other things that he needs for his daily living. Because on the one hand, Nehemiah knows that he doesn't need it. He doesn't need the food allowance. He's got enough to provide for himself and for those around him. But on the other hand, he knows that if he exacted that tax, that food allowance from the people, it would have been more harmful for them. It would have further deepened their impoverishment. This picture of Nehemiah's generosity of not using what rights he had for his own benefit illustrates God's common grace to humanity and that while God is the righteous judge of all things, while God could demand the payment of sin from every human being immediately upon the moment of our first sin, that God could require our death at the moment of our first rebellion against him in his common grace, he doesn't. God in his common grace has his justice informed by his perfect love and by his desire to see his creatures come to repentance. The Apostle Peter writes in 2 Peter 3, verse 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Friend, if there is breath in your lungs today, if your heart is still beating, all of this is a common grace of God to all humanity that he has allowed us to continue living, even in sin, for the purpose of repenting, for the purpose of giving us time and opportunity to see our very perilous state as we walk in opposition to God, an opportunity to see the very good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that the righteous creator God that we have infinitely offended by our rebellion against him has made a way for us to be, given, be forgiven to be forgiven perfectly. Friend, if there is air in your lungs, if your heart is beating, do not despise the common grace of God by walking in unrepentance of sin any longer. Use the breath in your lung to sing his praises. And the blood that courses through your veins, give, give it and the energy and the efforts of your body all in praise and worship to God. He has delayed his exacting of punishment for sin on you so that you might come to trust his son Jesus. Do it today. Second, Nehemiah's generosity images, images God's generosity and grace in another way. We see in Nehemiah's provision for these 150 people for 12 years that his provision is lavish. He doesn't hold anything back for those that he's caring for. He feeds dozens of people and many diplomatic visitors at his own expense, requiring nothing of the people that he is ruling over. In this way, Nehemiah's life and generosity illustrates the greater generosity of God's saving grace that he lavishes, that he pours in abundance upon all who come to him by faith. 
Listen to how Paul describes the generosity of God to us when we come to trust Jesus as Savior. He says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, In Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. The point is this, friend, when you come to Christ by faith, when you trust his death on the cross for your sins and his resurrection from the dead for your justification to God, you are forgiven, not just for some sins, not just for the little ones or just for the big ones, but for all of them. And not just for the sins that you have committed, but for the sins that you are committing and for the sins that you have yet to commit in your life. God is not stingy with his grace toward those who recognize that that God has given generously in His Son for those who have rebelled against Him. He does not hold back the riches of His grace and mercy to us. But He says, all that I am is yours. All the righteousness that my Son has with me is now yours. You are now a son. You are now a daughter to me. You are part of my family. You are my people for my possession, that you might be living beacons of my glory in the world. And everything that is mine is yours. I give you even my Holy Spirit to live within you, to enable you to be who I have made you to be. God holds nothing back in his mercy to those who turn to him in repentance and faith. He provides lavishly in salvation. Nehemiah's generosity shows the common grace of God. It it illustrates, in in a smaller sense, the saving grace of God, and in that way points us to the saving and the the, the great common grace and the great saving grace of God to all of us. But most of all, and even by his own admission, Nehemiah's generosity comes from a heart of worship for God. Already, Nehemiah has shown his understanding of God's gracious redemption, his his rescue, his bringing his people out of slavery in Egypt so about a thousand years before Nehemiah's day and out of exile in, uh, from Persia back to Jerusalem just a few decades before his own life. And knowing how great a gift it is to be God's people and to be cared for personally by God in these ways, Nehemiah comes to see everything that is his as a gift of God, and he holds everything that God has provided to him, all of his financial resources. He holds all of it with loose hands in order that it might be used for the good of others and the glory of God. Nehemiah lives out the point of Jesus' parable of the unforgiving servant, that the kingdom of God is populated by those who are transformed by the grace of God, by the generosity and salvation of God in order to be gracious and to be forgiving and to be giving of themselves to others as well. We see Nehemiah's heart of worship in the prayer that he prays at the end of this chapter, verse 19. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I've done for this people. Now, for some of us, his prayer may sound in our ears like an egotistic boast of his generosity. God, look how good I've been to your people. Aren't I awesome? Think well of me, God, for how generous I've been. Or it might sound like Nehemiah is trying to get God's attention by his giving. God, I've been really, really generous. I've tried to do a lot of really, really good things. Will will you please give me some of your favor for the good things that I've done? Both of these, either seeing Nehemiah's prayer as an egotistic boast or seeing his prayer as a pleading for God's special grace because of good things that he's done, both of these misunderstand Nehemiah's prayer. They misread the heart of his prayer. Instead, Nehemiah's prayer is a prayer of total confidence in his own motives, and his own trust in God. 
God who sees the heart of every person. And so his prayer is something more like, God, you alone know my heart. You alone know my love for you and my love for your people. So even if no one ever knows, or even if everyone assumes wrongly about me, I know, God, that you know my heart. Remember for my good, oh God, all that, you, all that I've done for your people. If no one else sees it, if no one else knows it, that's fine, God, you do. You do. Nehemiah's motive for generosity comes out of a heart that loves and worships God who has been generous to him. Christian, the challenge that we all face is to think very much of ourselves for our generosity or to think much of ourselves for our wealth. Some of us even go out of our way to make sure that others know how much we make and others know how much we give. I've seen it even in our own church at times. People making a show of placing that pink envelope in that offering basket. People making a show of of giving a check or giving one of those offering envelopes to one of us as pastors at the front of the worship center before we give worship. People making a show in their conversations with others in the church about how much money they have and how much money they can give and how much is a tithe on a million dollars, pastor. We laugh sometimes at that, but it terrifies me. Listen, friend, and know this as Nehemiah did. God is not impressed with your wealth. God could give a rip how much you have in your bank account. He is the creator and the owner of all things. Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates don't hold a candle to God's wealth. He doesn't care what you got in your stimulus check. But instead, friends, see that if you have great wealth, and by the way, if you live in the United States of America, you are abundantly wealthy in a global sense. You are more wealthy than 99% of the world. If you have great wealth, you must come to see it as a gift of God to be used for the work of God with a heart of worship for God. All of it comes from Him. All of it is meant to be used for Him and for His glory in the world. Know this also. Not only is God not impressed with your wealth, he's also not impressed with your generosity. God has shown us the perfect picture of generosity, of giving liberally out of one's own possessions for the good and joy of another as he gives his own son to rescue us from sin. You want a picture of generosity? Look to the gospel. Look to Christ. See all that God has given to rescue you and me and our wretchedness and our sinfulness from the results of our sin. He gives his own son to save us. God is not impressed by your generosity. Instead, know that your generosity, motivated by the heart of worship, says a lot about how you understand God. And so instead, I'm not saying don't be generous, but instead, quietly give generously to the work of God and to the care of the saints because of your love and worship of God who has been generous to you in Jesus Christ. Friends, it's neither wealth nor power that define our life, but it's our heart's relationship to our Creator. Money and power are are, are tools. Tools given by God to be used for His glory and to be used for the good of those who are around us. So reflect this morning yourself, has has your heart been made new? Have you been born again by receiving God's generous gift of salvation, by giving your life to His Son, Jesus, as Lord? 
If you've received this generous gift of God of salvation through faith in Jesus, you have now in Christ all that is necessary for living generously toward others. You know the one who has exhibited perfect generosity. And out of worship for him, you are able to give with godly generosity to others in ways that glorifies God and does good for others. And even if no one else sees it, God does. Even if other people assume poorly of your motives, God knows what they are. This morning, let us all reflect upon the lavish forgiveness that is ours in Christ and turn to worship God in gladness with all that he has given us in this life. God generously rescues and redeems people for his own glory so that we can live generously in the world to demonstrate the great abundance, the great lavish generosity of God to all people in salvation. What is your life and the way you treat the things that God has given to you? What does it say about your understanding of God's generosity and salvation? May it be that we as God's people, Christians saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, would be generous because we know a generous God who has covered for us a debt we could not pay and called us to be a people for himself by giving his own son to die for our sins and be raised again. An extravagant gift. Let's pray together.